place to which we journey tonight is extremely dangerous. You must obey every command I give you without question. Yes, sir. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. What's that do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. So I want you to stay right here and wait for me. He left He left it! But that's not what I'm gonna do. We should call him Zatara. Sounds fearsome. <laughs> it means driftwood. See all those words printed in a line, one after the other? Put them all together, and you have a story. I had a conversation recently with my brother-in-law and he is uh, has a PhD in philosophy and we were talking about stories and books. And he was saying how before the Industrial Revolution, there really wasn't a fantasy genre in fiction because the world was a magical, mystical place. Before science took over and before we started to really understand all facets of this, this globe that we live on, before all of that, people just assumed and believed that the world was a fantastical, mystical place. It was only after the Industrial Revolution that we needed a genre defined by a world that was still steeped in magic and in unexplained events that occur in the world. I, for one, still believe that the world is a magical place and it just has taken a different form. One of the things that the horror genre has done, it has kept this world being a place that where, where unexplained things can still occur. And while we might call them magical or mystical, horror takes it a, from a different angle, more like uh, things from the unseen side can occur. I can tell you I have met countless people that have had strange, eerie, unexplained occurrences happen in their life, and they will tell you unequivocally, like, these things actually happened. First-person perspectives of people that believe that something absolutely unexplainable by science or by any of the laws of the world that we understand today, of the natural world, these things are remain unexplained. That is one of the things that I love about ghost stories is they keep the mysticism, they keep the, the, the fantastical element of this world alive. And they do it in such a way that is undeniable because it generates inside each of us fear and doubt. And it's so interesting to see these two things leveraged in such a way to get us to accept that maybe not everything in the world around us is as it seems. A couple years back, my wife, Shalina, and her sister, Wendy, were at a store in Lehigh, Utah. The store is called Cabela's. It is an outdoor store where they have guns, camping equipment, climbing gear, all sorts of outdoor equipment, and it's a really massive store. While there, they picked out a few things that they wanted to try on. And as most sports stores go, they, they're not really known for uh, high fashion and people needing to try on all sorts of types of denim or anything like that. So there were just a couple of changing rooms at Cabela's, but they were different than most changing rooms. Rather than being like a hallway lined with doors that are only, you know, go down to a foot away from the floor, these changing rooms were more like small closets and the doors went all the way to the ground and all the way to the top of the door frame so that when they were closed, they were completely closed. Now, Wendy and Shalina, they, they approached the changing rooms and they tried the handles and both of the changing rooms were locked. And there was no, uh, you know, store worker nearby to help them get them unlocked and they kind of looked around and they walked around a bit and they found someone they're like hey can we use the changing rooms and this lady that worked at Cabela's said to them 
the, they should be open. Like, we don't keep our changing rooms locked. Are you sure somebody's not in there? And they're like, come, like, nobody's in there. We, we tried the handle and we knocked and nobody's in the changing rooms. And this lady says under her breath, oh, those dang ghosts. And Wendy and Shalina look at each other and like, what did you say? And Lady's like, come on. And she walks them over to the changing rooms and she tries the door herself. It won't open. It's locked. She tries both of the changing rooms right by each other. They're both locked. And she just shakes her head and they're like, what? What's going on? And she's like, I'm going to have to find someone to get the key, but that's really weird. And Shalina's like, did you, like, you said those dang ghosts? And this lady's like, yeah, Cabela's is haunted. And they were like, what? And the lady said it so deadpan, so serious that they, they were like intrigued. She's like, yeah, Cabela's is haunted. All these eerie things happen here. She's like, when we're here working late at night after the store is closing, you know, restocking shelves and doing things like that, or when the some of our managers are up in their office, they hear the little pitter-patter of footsteps running around the store. And of course, you they try and always brush it off and say, oh, it maybe maybe someone's still in the store and they look around and they check on the on the security cameras and sure enough, the store appears to be totally empty. And then a manager, you know, be sitting there, get back to work, and suddenly they hear the pitter-patter of footsteps. And not just any footsteps. They sound like children's footsteps. And the lady goes on to tell them, and she's like, yeah, crazy things happen. Like, the, the cleaning service will come in. They'll clean the entire store, including the bathrooms. And then the next morning, the people who open up the store to start the day will go into the bathrooms, and they find little handprints all over the mirrors in the bathroom. And the cleaning crew from the night before, they have asked them, they have taken pictures, and they swear up and down that they were not there the night before and that they cleaned the entire bathroom and it was spick and span before they left. And sure enough, the next morning, there's these little handprints. Some of the workers claim to have heard laughing, like young children laughing in the store late at night. And so the lady said, yeah, like when these doors get locked, it's the ghosts. So Shalina and Wendy are, are listening to this and they just can't believe how much this lady believes in these stories that she's telling them. And they're like, this is weird and a little creepy. But this lady gets on her walkie-talkie and she's like, I don't have the key to these changing rooms, but let me get let me get Carl over here and he'll unlock the room. She gets on her radio and she's like, Carl, can you come down? He's like, sure. So they're waiting there for Carl to come unlock the changing room. And Shalina is waiting around there to change and she gets the idea. She's like, why don't I just try the door one more time? And she reaches out and grabs the door that had previously been locked, the door they'd been standing in front of for the past 10 minutes. And when she grabs the handle, the door opens. It wasn't locked anymore. And there was nobody inside the changing room. Well, you can believe that when Wendy and Shalina went to try on these new clothes that they had picked out, their mind wasn't totally on the clothes. Their mind was more on the fact that a little child ghost had just been in those rooms and had unlocked the door after it had locked it on them. When my wife told me this story, the same day that it happened, she came home. Her and her sister, they, they were kind of at a loss for words to explain what happened. There was, there was no way that they could explain these events. It just didn't seem possible that the door could be locked. And sure, sure, a third-party listener could be like, oh, something was up. There's something funny with the doorknob. But Shalina will swear that they tried it five or six times, tapping on the door, pulling on the handle, nothing. And then out of the blue, the door just unlocked. 
ghost stories keep the magic in the world, but do it in a way that gives us the chills. The best thing about ghost stories is, is it seems like everybody's got a story that they can share that is very cringy, very scary that happened to them, and they'll swear up and down that these events actually happened and that they're totally unexplainable. In fact, a really close friend of mine, Kenny McAfee, he's got a ghost story that, that is really good, and uh, I actually wanted him to tell it to you in his own words. So here is Kenny sharing his ghost story. Most of the times, if you hear a scary story, it's more of a myth or a legend, or it might even be something that happened to your neighbor's brother's cousin's friend. But rarely is it a first-hand encounter. But this is a story of my first-hand encounter, and I'm going to try to tell it with as few artistic liberties as I can, because this is an actual event, and I promise you in every way that I can this really did happen to me. It happened to me when I was in between my junior and senior year of high school, and I had taken on a job to work for my then wrestling coach. And my wrestling coach owned a solar company, and he also recently had purchased a home up in the foothills, kind of back in the woods. And he employed a few of his sons and son-in-laws and they were trying to completely remodel this house and also at the same time continue to keep the business running, continue to install solar panels. And so he hired me to mainly help with the renovation. And at the time, being a high school junior, senior, uh, really had few skills but could do some manual labor. My wrestling coach had purchased this property and had got it at a great price because the person who had lived in the house before had died. And he had died in the house and was there alone for several days before anyone knew that he had died. And in the hot California sun had started to decompose. He started to decompose right on the living room floor. And when I showed up, obviously the body was gone and the coroner had come and taken everything, but there was still a smell and a stain. And we ripped out the carpet in the living room, but on the cement underneath the carpet was still a very visible stain that had seeped into the porous concrete and was extremely visible. And we simply referred to it as the dead guy stain. And it was a little unnerving at first, but I spent my entire summer at this house ripping out walls, building new walls, uh, breaking out fireplaces and building new fireplaces. And we completely gutted this house, remodeled it, rebuilt it, uh, sometimes ripped out the stuff that we had built because I was just in high school and didn't know what I was doing, but I still was trusted to do some of these things. And sooner or later, the dead guy stain just became a mark on the floor and really didn't think much about it at that time at uh anymore after that and we would joke about it occasionally but that was about the extent of it and this went on for weeks and months and we were wrapping up this construction project so that his wife 
and him could move into this house and we needed to finish things up. There were a few details that needed to be done. And one of the details was finish up the drywall, mudding, taping in the living room, right near the dead guy stain. Because I was the only employee who wasn't a son or a son-in-law or some sort of relative at this company, I normally got stuck with a lot of the random tasks. And so on this particular day, all of my coworkers had gone to their father, father-in-law's house and were helping pack everything up so they could get ready to move into this house. So it was my job to finish up the drywall on this particular room. And if you don't know much about construction or how drywall works, whenever there's an extruding corner, there's a small thin piece of metal that runs from the ceiling to the floor and it is inside of the drywall because if you had a corner of just drywall it would be soft and every time you'd bump into it it would break and so they cover it with this very thin very light piece of metal and it's this little beading that uh, goes around the corners and so i was at a point where i was putting the beading on the corners in this room I was there at this house all alone, and I had been there for at least eight hours, but I'd gotten there at about noon, and so it was evening time at this point, and it was starting to get dark. It wasn't dark yet by any means, but it was starting to, and I'm measuring out these different corners, and I'm cutting this thin piece of metal uh, down to the length that's from the floor to the ceiling. And then I put mud and tape over the top of it and get ready, getting it ready to paint. And because they were just about ready to move in, even though the house wasn't quite there yet, uh, their dogs had moved in and they had a couple of dogs and they'd been there for a few days. And so I'd known these dogs and they knew me and they'd run around and come in and out of the house because we didn't really have the AC going yet. And so doors were windows and everything were open. And uh, mainly they would just kind of run in and out. There was a lab and a pug and one other mutt. And in the middle of me cutting and measuring these pieces of metal and, and putting what's called mud on them onto the wall, the dogs started to act funny and they quit coming into the room where I was and they were barking and I couldn't figure out what they were doing or what they were barking at or why they wouldn't come near me, but they stopped and they would stay in the kitchen and would not come into the living room or they would go outside. And I figured, well, forget it. I just need to get this done. And so I can get out of here. I've been here alone all day and it's getting dark and I'm hungry and I'm a teenager and I probably had other things to do. I had set up two sawhorses with these big sheets of leftover drywall on them as a makeshift table to do my work, my cutting and, and prepping. So I'm cutting this, it's probably an eight foot sheet of very thin metal with a tape measure. And I had to measure it out just perfectly so it would fit just right and look just right. So these were very precise cuts. And it was one of these scenarios where you measure twice, cut once and get it right. And so I was very focused on what I was doing, uh, despite these dogs, uh, that were barking at me and not coming near me. 
And I was highly focused and I have one particular sheet of metal on top of this makeshift table and I mark where I'm going to cut and I double check it on the tape measure and I turn to go grab my shears uh, that cut this metal and this piece of metal starts to slide across the table toward me just ever so slowly but continually sliding across the table. So I slam my hand down on top of it and I take a deep breath and I tell myself, this is the last thing I need to do before I can leave. That's probably just the wind blowing it across the table. Then also in my head, I thought, you idiot, you're inside of a house. There is no wind. I said, nope, 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 nope. I'm just going to let this go and I'm going to continue to cut this thing and then I'm getting out of here. So I let go and I watched and it slid across the table. So I slam my hand down on it and I realize that I'm standing on top of the stain where this man had died. I'm on top of his ooze that just seeped into the concrete over my feet and that we had gotten so accustomed to over a few months of being there that it wasn't even the first thought that crossed my mind when this inanimate object started sliding across the table. But it was the only thing I was thinking about at that moment. And I thought in my head, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe that this is happening. I'm just going to finish this up and go home. But also in my head, I said, I'm going to lift my hand up. And if this moves, I am out of here and I am not coming back. So I lift my hand up, I let go of this piece of metal, and I watch it. And it ever so slowly starts sliding toward me across the table. And I am about to turn and run and never come back. But then I realize that my self-retracting tape measure was hooked to the top of this piece of metal where I'd been measuring meticulously to make sure I cut it just right. And a self-retracting tape measure wants to pull the end right back in and was pulling this metal along with it. So I unhooked it. I sat and watched that piece of metal. It didn't move at all. Then I hooked it back up and watched it slowly slide across the table toward me. Then I unhooked it and just for good measure, watched it again and it didn't move. So I finished up what I was doing and then decided to go home. But to this day, I'm still not sure why or for what reason those dogs were barking or why they wouldn't come into the living room. I know the ending of that story is actually very comforting because it reminds us that that often this, the creepy things that happen in our life are actually very explainable. But what it does indicate is that once we are afraid, how quickly our rational minds go out the window and we start to embrace every irrational thought possible. And as storytellers or lovers of story and readers of books and watchers of movies, we can take note of how this is working in, in narratives and, and it makes it that much more interesting to watch is how quickly we abandon rational thought when engaging with these seemingly unexplainable events. I have to be totally honest at this point. I am a complete scaredy cat when it comes to these kinds of stories. I am very easily made afraid. I'm very easy to get that chill to run down my spine. And yet... 
I'm also intrigued by it because, like I said, there's a magic to it. There's a there's a mysticalness that keeps this world filled with unexplained, fantastic things. And yet it causes such fear and repulsion inside of me that I'm all cringing. As evidence of this, I sat down to record this podcast the other night and my house was quiet. My wife had gone to bed. My three daughters were in bed and I was alone in my basement. And the thought of sitting down and telling ghost stories by myself... I couldn't handle it. I, I, I could not record this podcast at night. So here I am sitting in my office in the middle of the day telling these ghost stories because I am easily terrified. And yet there's something about it that really draws me to it. I love a good thrill and a good scare. I'd like to think that this is an advantage when it comes to stories and telling stories because... Uh, like Alfred Hitchcock, he, he once said that he was filled with fears, that when he was a young boy, he was scared of everything. And it was because of that that he was able to capture such vivid suspense and thrill in his films because he knows what it's like to be afraid. And I have to admit that I know what it's like to be afraid. Fear is a very potent emotion. And, and like I've mentioned before, stories are all about generating a certain kind of emotion. That's what makes them so memorable is because when we feel something so deeply, it impacts us and gives us that cathartic experience that comes from hearing a good story because we put ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist. And then we engage with something that is difficult or new or fantastical, or in this case, scary. And through that, we have a, a, a cathartic experience when done right. Fear is an incredibly powerful tool in the storyteller's toolbox. Even if you aren't writing ghost stories, which will be the bulk of the focus of what we're talking about today, even if you're not writing ghost stories, the ability to generate fear is a powerful tool and, and one that is a lot of fun. Because like I said, I know so many people, you bring up ghost stories or scary stories, and it seems like just about everybody has something unexplained that happened to them that they are willing to share and that they will swear up and down has no explanation in the natural laws of the world around us. As I've thought a lot about scary stories and ghost stories and the way that they work and the ins and outs of them and what makes them interesting and why we enjoy them, I've come to realize there are, there are three main components for me that make a huge difference in the ability to generate this kind of a, this this kind of fear in a story. And and you'll notice that many of the of the great stories that just stick with us that are timeless that are in this horror or thriller genre or this ghost story genre they lean very heavily on these three principles. The first of those is death. The horror genre is very much tied to this facet of death. It is, it is the end of all things. It is, it is the, the unknowable beyond. It is the number one fear that we all will one day face. The incredible thing about death is it's as tied to life as, as breathing air is. It, is. it is the end of every beginning. Every birth will, will end in a death. We will all one day experience it. And yet, because we don't know what is in that great beyond, there is trepidation inherently. Even in the most faithful, God-fearing person who has a very strong belief in the afterlife, there will be some trepidation on death's door because nobody can tell us what it's like. Those that have gone on, they can't come back and tell us what happened. And if they did, it would arouse in us a lot more trepidation and fear because death is that ultimate mystery. 
I, I remember before jumping off a cliff when I was 16, we were doing a river rafting trip and we had gone down the Snake River and we stopped at a spot where there was some good cliff jumping and it was the highest cliffs I've ever jumped off of. And I climbed up there and someone, three or four people went before me. Watching them sail down into the water and splash gave me comfort because I'm like, okay, they did it and survived, right? And so I had fear that trepidation of jumping off that cliff, but watching other people do it and survive and be fine gave me the confidence to move forward and do it myself. In fact, the person right before me had gone twice and they're like, just remember, jump down and keep your arms to your side so that they don't slap when they hit the water. And suddenly I've got a mentor who's teaching me how to jump off this cliff and to do it right so that I don't get hurt and I don't get injured. And all of this is done to decrease my trepidation and increase my confidence in my ability to do this and come away from it unharmed. Now, when we compare this to death, you see how it isn't possible to have that sort of reassurance. There is no mentor, there is no teacher who can assure us of what is going to happen on the other side. And because of that, death becomes the great fear, the driving force behind just about every horror story is death. If we think about it, horror and scary stories and ghost stories, they come in about four different classes. You have ghosts, people who have gone, and come back. And yet they behave very differently when they come back. They are not bound by the same rules and they are very difficult to understand. And that creates immense fear in us to be like, oh no, they went to the beyond. And when they came back, it seems like something's wrong. And that creates even more trepidation in us. The other thing about ghosts that is just very potent is that they seem to work with a different set of rules. And we don't know how to deal with them. In fact, if you think about it, if a ghost were to appear, to appear in front of you right now, technically a spirit shouldn't be able to harm you. And yet it would it engenders so much fear inside of us. And it's because we don't know what to do with it. We know if we see a ghost, now we have to do something about it. We have to grapple with that. We have to figure out how to lead our lives with this knowledge of, of something from the beyond. And, and it's more than most people want or are willing to handle in life. Beyond ghosts, you have the demonic spirits that... that um, are from the dark side or the evil side who come and interfere with the affairs of man. And nobody wants to be hounded by one of those. And again, they're from the other side, from the dead side of existence. The fourth category, when it comes to horror or scary stories, you have monsters. Monsters that are these entities that are not supposed to be in this world, but somehow find their way into it. And of course, they're fantastical zombies, which are the epitome of dead coming back to life. Dracula, who is a being that, that is more dead than living and lives off the blood of man. Uh, Frankenstein, which again is, is bringing the dead back to life. Uh, um, another component of monster stories is they're often created by the sins and the wickedness of man. Monsters like Godzilla or King Kong. Uh, Godzilla in particular is great because supposedly came about from, from nuclear weapons, which are like a massive sin of mankind having developed weapons of this destruction. It, in, it creates in nature this monster that can wreak such havoc in the world. And again, these monsters are incredibly capable of killing mankind. In fact, it seems that their entire purpose was to come back and punish mankind. And because of that, we, we, we struggle with these monster stories and, and sort of a Venn diagram over monsters. Uh, then you have killers, right? So we have ghosts, 
We have demons, we have monsters, and then we have killers. And killers are stories about serial killers and murderers and, you know, the Freddy Kruegers or the, the, the Jasons from the Halloween series. Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. They're these, these human beings that, that are really have more in common with monsters than they do human beings. And their ability to kill without remorse turns them into these monsters that we fear greatly because, again... All of these entities, they work by a different set of rules. And that the key rule in all four categories is they do not abide by the same rules that we do when it comes to death. Batman is a really great example of how most of humanity feels about killing. And we believe that it is the line in the sand that you do not cross, right? Unless you're a soldier or you're at war, uh, in terms of societal ethics, we believe that, that, that killing is wrong. And, and it's, it's almost like this universal belief that we know that killing another human being for no reason is just plain wrong. And all of these different categories within the horror genre of ghost stories, demons, monsters, killers, they all have this in common that they do not operate under the same rule. And because of that, they become controllers of death. And that generates a lot of fear inside of us as the audience. Now, there is a, a bracket of monsters that is a little bit different, and that is the extraterrestrials. Inside of the horror genre, you have aliens. And again, they operate very much like other monsters. They don't feel the same way about death as we do because they look at us like animals often is the trope that gets followed. Uh, but aliens, they're, they're not always here to kill humankind. And they actually take this idea of death being such a pivotal role in a horror story and they turn it on its head because the creepy thing about aliens is not the idea of an alien coming in and killing you. Yes, that is scary. But some of the better horror stories that are around alien life forms have to do with body snatching like in the movie Body Snatchers or Fire in the Sky. And it's this idea that these aliens can come in and take your body and take it up with them and then perform studies on your body. And that is terrifying. In fact, if there is anything that is more frightening than death, it would be an abduction. Because an abduction leaves you wanting to die. You would rather die than be abducted. And so aliens kind of take it a step further because they look at humanity as specimens as something to be studied, the way they treat us is under this whole new set of rules that do not jive with our own. And it creates this angst, fear, anxiety, and disgust inside of us when we engage with these stories that have these creations, these creatures that operate under a set, different set of rules. So that is factor number one, death. Scary stories, ghost stories, horror stories, they're all going to be intertwined with death. And you should use this to your advantage when you're thinking about telling stories or when you're engaging with stories. Notice how death is always a component of it. And often it goes much deeper than just death. It has to do with grim deaths. Because honestly, action movies, war movies, they're filled with death too. But it's death of a different kind. It's, it's death is this ultimate door Whereas a horror story crosses through that door and engages and grapples with these concepts that are, that are really difficult for us to want to engage with because it engenders in us so much fear. Component number two is the uncanny valley. Now, there's probably many of you that have heard of the uncanny valley before. I think I've mentioned it before on, on my podcast. 
But I'd like to dive in and talk about a little more because the uncanny valley is actually a principle of visual design or, or visual art form. And it's this concept that if you were to diagram out uh, this concept, it would look like this. So you've got a diagram like a line chart. The bottom line on the graph represents how human or realistic or true an image is. So on the left side of the graph, on the low end of realistic, you'd have like a kid's drawing where he draws a circle, two dots, and a smile. Like it's it's very low on, on the level of how real that image looks, right? right? Like a, a smiley face actually looks nothing like a human. So on that, that scale from left to right, you have how realistic something looks. Now on the top, the y-axis, up and down on this chart, this side of the graph charts how appealing an image is to us as humans. And what you'll notice is that if you survey most people, the more realistic something gets, the more true to life something gets in terms of a visual design, the more that we appreciate it, okay? So a smiley face, and then you move into cartoony, and then you move into sketches, and then you reach a point where an image, whether it's a drawing, a, a 3D image, you know, CGI in movies, and you reach a point where they look so realistic that we cannot tell the difference between them and life itself. And that point ultimately becomes very appealing because we're like, it looks exactly like the world does around me. But what you're going to find is you chart this graph. There is a point on the graph where instead of moving up, it drops and creates this valley that we call the uncanny valley. And what that is, is there reaches a point where something looks so close to lifelike, so close to humanoid, but it's a little off that instead of becoming appealing, it creates revulsion. And the graph drops and creates this literal valley where you, if, if you were trying to make art or some other uh, visual creation and you want it to be appealing to people, to humans, you don't want to be in that uncanny valley. The best example of this is the movie The Polar Express because the, the CGI was coming along so well to where they could capture the imagery of what human beings look like. And then they did motion capture that made, made these, these CGI images move like human beings in their body. And, and everything was so close to real, but it was just a little off from real. The, the images and the people and the characters in Polar Express, there is a cringiness to them. They fall dead in the uncanny valley where you're like, oh, like, oh, there, there's something off about them. And it's, and it's almost disturbing and it creates disgust and revulsion, right? So if you think on the left side of the uncanny valley, as you go up this hoop, you're going to have things like Pixar, where they stuck in the very beginning, Pixar stuck with toys and bugs, and they wanted these hard surface shapes because CGI was really good at rendering these perfectly smooth surfaces that are all one piece like a toy. And if you notice, if you go and rewatch Toy Story, they're very careful about showing Andy and his sister and his mom because even, even the characters in Toy Story, the actual human beings, even Sid, they kind of had to choose to, instead of make them look, try and make them look realistic, they kind of went a little more cartoony so that they didn't fall in that uncanny valley. And even with Andy and Sid, they fall in the uncanny valley a little bit. There's something a little off about the humans because their skin just seems plasticky and they seem less lifelike and, and, and we don't like it. It doesn't appeal to us. 
And then on the right-hand side of the Uncanny Valley, you're going to have CGI in, in movies that, that you don't even know is CGI. Things like in the recent Star Wars where they take actors who, who have passed away and recreate them in CGI. And they, they talk and they move and they look like a real person. And it, it, it's totally fine. And, and it appeals to us still because we're, we just assume that it's a human being in front of the camera. And we're so used to seeing life in that display that it's absolutely acceptable to have images like that and, and, and we accept them as viewers, as readers. Now, I know it's a little bit tough to demonstrate what a graph looks like through a podcast, so if you weren't able to visualize that properly, I would go ahead and Google it, and you can see, just Google the Uncanny Valley, and you're going to see this chart, and they're going to give you examples of what the Uncanny Valley means uh, when, when you're talking about visual design. But what does this have to do with ghost stories and horror stories? Well, let me tell you. Because in most stories and in most creations, films, books, what have you, you're going for realism and you want it to be appealing to the reader and so you avoid the uncanny valley. But I have noticed that expert storytellers will leverage the uncanny valley in order to create disgust and revulsion in the viewer. And since you are going for fear and dread in your reader or in your viewer, that this uncanny valley pops up over and over again. You're trying to make things that, that are absolutely disgusting. And the way you do that isn't by taking something that is so unhuman and foreign that it becomes disgusting. In fact, a lot of times that doesn't work when a, when a creation or a creature in a movie seems so non-human, we have an easier time accepting it than if you take a human and tweak it just a little bit so that it's just a little off. Let's go through some, some examples of how this works. The key example that comes to my mind is Frankenstein, right? He is the ultimate grotesque monster slash human. He, you take a human who has been dead, stitch him together with the parts of many different corpses, bring him back to life, and he doesn't understand who he is, and we don't understand who he is. And it's sort of bridging this gap between life and death that is supposed to not happen, and he's, he, he must be a monster, but, but at the same time, he exists exhibits human-like qualities, and because of that, there is, this, there is this revulsion to the idea of Frankenstein. And when he is depicted in, in modern imagery, we have this natural repulsion because his proportions are off, and the stitching, and the way he moves, it's almost human, but not. And it creates that disgust and that dread that you want to go for when you're telling a horror story or a ghost story. Watch for it in movies and in books. You'll notice that this happens all the time. Tim Burton is really, really good at this uncanny valley. Go watch Nightmare Before Christmas and you'll notice that he, he plays with this, this grotesque uncanny valley in all of the characters in Nightmare Before Christmas and in some of the characters in A Corpse Bride. I, I, I think of Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas and she's a Frankenstein-like character and, and the funny thing is they make her a beautiful woman but then they add elements to it that, that just get so gross, like when she undoes the stitch on her arm and her, her arm just falls off and she runs away and she spends the entire evening running around uh, Halloween town without an arm. And she's so close to being human, but not that, that it's like this kind of cringy feel. And yet at the same time, it's kind of appealing because we're like, ooh, that's the, 
sort of gothic horror mood that comes with Halloween and, and we like it at the same time as hating it. Another character from Nightmare Before Christmas that gives me the willies more than any other character and he's so subtle and he's such a side character that many people don't even notice it but there's a little fat boy who when it looks like Christmas isn't going to happen that a fog rolls in and Jack Skellington isn't going to be able to go out and be Santa this little boy starts to cry and if you look closely this little boy his eyes have been sewn shut he cannot see he is blind but other than that, he's just a chubby little boy and he's crying like any other boy. And yet when you see these eyes sewn shut, it's like, Aah! it's not appealing at all. It's so grotesque. In Tim Burton's Frankenweenie, he has another character that he does this with so expertly. You can just look it up. She's called the Weird Girl. And she... <laughs> Not only does she talk funny and say things weird and have weird behavior, but she's got these enormous eyes with a teeny tiny pupil. And I swear she never blinks. Of all the characters in the show, Weird Girl does not blink. And every time she's on camera, it just gives you the willies. You're like this. And again, it's because she's this cute little girl and he's taking, he's taken one element the size of her eyes and exaggerated them. And suddenly you have something that is grotesque and repulsive that, that we don't like looking at. And yet when we're in a story, we're forced to look at it and engage with it. Two more wonderful examples of this. If you all remember in, in elementary school, you probably had the, the books called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And there were Scary Stories 1, 2, and 3. And I got to be honest, the stories in those books were never that creepy, except for the one where a girl has like a, a, a acne on her face and it keeps growing and growing and growing. And she's like, what is it? What is it? And she's trying to get rid of it. And then one day she pops it and spiders climb out. That is a totally disgusting, cringeworthy story. But most of the stories and scary stories to tell uh, in the dark the stories themselves were not that great. Some of them were, eh, they're, they're just okay. What made those books so iconic and so memorable for most of us is the illustrations. The illustrator for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is Stephen Gamble, and his art is just so perfectly in the uncanny valley that I, I can't even bear to look at some of it. Like, it, it is so <laughs> jaw-droppingly disgusting, the things that he does with art, and he, he is playing with the uncanny valley. He's taking something humanoid and twisting it just enough to make us cringe and go, that's close to being human and not, and it, and it just creates this immense amount of disgust. And those books were so iconic because of Stephen Gamble's artwork. In fact, in 2011, HarperCollins released a new edition of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and they got a new illustrator. And the new editions are much more tame. My daughter came home with one of these Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark books from school this past year. And I was like, ooh, those are fun. Let me show you the illustrations. Let's look. And I open it and I was like, what is this? This is so kid-friendly now. The ones that I had growing up would give you nightmares. So my daughter hearing this was intrigued and she was like, what's this all about? So she went back to school and she dug through the library to find one of the older pre-2011 versions, editions of these books. And it had all the creepy, gross, ugly illustrations that it had when I was a kid that I will never be able to forget. And she really enjoyed looking at them and talking about them with me. And she's like, they're so gross. Like, why do you like these better? And I'm like, it's because they're gross that I like them better. It's because they're more haunting and vivid and disgusting and terrifying. 
Body movements is another way that you can generate the same uncanny valley feeling, that same sort of dread. Uh, I think of The Ring, the, the very famous horror movie. It was actually a book in Japan. It was then a movie in Japan and then was recreated in 2001 as a, a movie here in the States. And it is very, very famous because it does a number of things really, really well. And we're going to talk about it here in a bit. But one of the things that it does is there's this girl that climbs out of the TV at you and she's got her hair combed down in front of her face. And again, that's the uncanny valley, right? Like nobody does that because a human being, we're used to seeing them with hair pulled back, especially girls, if their hair is long or even men, if the hair is long, you pull it back because you can't see with hair in front of your eyes. So they do the opposite. The hair goes in front of the girl's eyes because she's ghost. She doesn't need her eyes. And now you've got this like feeling from it, right? We're dead in the center of the uncanny valley at that point. Um, and as the girl, she, and uh, I hope I'm not ruining anything for those who haven't watched it. She climbs out of the TV and the way that she climbs just feels very disgusting and her body's kind of contorted as she's moving and kind of crawling very much animal-like. And when you take a human and make them move like an animal, again, we drop right into that uncanny valley. The last example that I'll give of the Uncanny Valley is, is this idea of taking something innocent and turning it evil. It does the exact same thing. You take something innocent that we, we view as cute and harmless and special and cherished, and you give it a little twist, and now the, that sensation of being in the Uncanny Valley is just much more pronounced. I'm thinking of clowns. Remember when we were young, like clowns were a fun thing that you'd have a birthday party and they'd make you laugh. And then you have Stephen King who comes along and makes the movie It. And suddenly clowns are evil because it's too easy to take a clown and make them evil. And for some reason, they're, them being dressed up as something that's supposed to be funny and childish and making them evil and make them do awful things, it accentuates the grotesqueness of what they are. And so now I, I, I don't know a single person who's just like, man, I love clowns. I really wish my bedroom was decorated with a bunch of smiley clowns. No, they have become a symbol of horror entirely because they are the perfect antithesis of what they're supposed to be. Dolls. I don't know anybody who doesn't see an old doll and think, oh, that's kind of creepy. And that's for two reasons. One, because it looks like a baby. Two, because dolls are always falling apart and their eyes are doing weird things. They fall right in that uncanny valley, right? It's a baby, but it's not a baby because it's a toy. And so it doesn't actually look like a baby. It's just trying to approximate a baby. And that becomes cringy. And then, of course, you have things like Chucky. You know, Child's Play, the film series where they take a doll and he is the killer. So they've taken those two genres, right, where they've taken something innocent, turned evil and combined it with a killer slash monster. And suddenly you have something very, very scary. Children is another thing that, that is often very creepy. Often ghost stories are going to be told around kids because we know kids are innocent and we know kids shouldn't die. And so when you have a ghost that is a child, you know that they died before their time and there is just something woeful about that that it, that is engendered when we when we have a ghost story that's around a child the girl that climbs out of the tv in the ring is young uh the little boy who goes red rum in the shining he's a young kid and again when you see this innocent thing engaging with something so dark and ugly there's a mismatch there's there's a dissonance emotionally with that experience and and it creates this fear inside of us Raoul Dahl's book about witches does this again so perfectly because you learn from it that witches don't have toes. And I like when I was a kid and my brother told me witches don't have toes. I was like, I just pictured this foot in my mind that had no toes and it just ended and it, it created this very 
icky feeling inside of me and then that they don't have hair, that they are bald. And so they have to wear wigs. And so this image uh, of these, these ugly old women that are bald and have no toes, it's playing in that uncanny valley. Like the, these, these creators of these iconic horror figures of these iconic Halloween symbols, they know what they're doing. And it is often taking something innocent or something realistic, human, safe, and giving it just a little bit of a twist, and suddenly it becomes repulsive. So I wanted to give you two examples of this working uh, in an actual story. When I was young, we'd go over to my cousin's house, one of my older cousins named Randy. For some reason, among me and my brothers, it was known that Randy had some really good, scary stories to tell us. And so one night, my brothers were pestering him and like, hey, we're sleeping over tonight. Are you going to tell us a scary story? And sure enough, he obliged us and he told a story that probably wasn't too scary for my, my older siblings, but it just stuck with me for a really, really long time. And it went something like this. There was a man who lived alone in a house. He went to work every day and came home at night and watched TV. And sometimes he'd, he'd stay up a little bit late working and, and getting some stuff done for the office tomorrow. And, you know, he had a, a pretty peaceful life. And then one night, while he was, he was staying up late working on a project, the phone rang. He went and got the phone, and he said, hello? And there was no answer on the other end. He didn't think much of it until a few nights later, same thing was happening. He was, he was up watching TV, and the phone rang, and he went and answered it, and he picked it up. And there was nobody there. He said, hello? Hello? And he listened very closely this time. And he thought he could hear what, what, what sounded like breathing. <sighs> this who is this who are you what is this a prank call nothing so he hung up again well the very next night the call came again he's like hello i'm gonna figure out who this is. who is this and he listens very close and this voice on the other end goes help me help me and he's totally just like what is going on so he slams the phone down he's like oh what in the world it's just bugging him. And then the phone rings again in the next five minutes. And he picks it up and same thing, a voice going, help me, help me. And he slams the phone down. And he's like, ah, am I being prank called? What is this? And, you know, he's getting a little bit nervous now. He's like, this is really weird. The next time the phone rings, he picks it up, same thing. He slams it again. This time he picks up the phone and dials star six, nine. And of course, the operator gives him the number back and... Uh, he, he asked the operator, okay, where, where is that number? And she gives him the address of the number. And lo and behold, it's just a few streets over from where his house is at. So the man gets up his courage and he's like, I've got to put an end to this. It's probably just kids playing. And he's like, I'm going to go figure this out. So he marches down the street, uh, goes a couple blocks over and he goes to this house and there's a for sale sign in front of the house and the house seems totally vacant. Nobody is there. He goes up and he knocks on the door. He rings the doorbell. He's listening. He's like, oh, this is so weird. Why would I be getting a call from this? He's like, there must be a mistake. And he's about to walk away. And then he's like, no, like if I go home, they're just going to keep calling. He's like, I've got to figure this out. So he tries the doorknob and the door opens. And he steps inside. And the house is dusty and dark. And he sees a set of stairs going up. He goes and walks around and looks around. And he notices that there is a spot on the wall where the phone is supposed to be, you know, one of those hooks where these old dial phones used to sit. 
and he sees that there's no phone there, but the wire, the, the phone line from the wall is running down onto the floor and towards an old little chest. And it's inside the chest. And the chest is way too small to fit a person. And this is just getting super weird. And the man wants to run away, but he's like, no, like I've got to figure this out because it's getting like, I just, I'm too curious at this point. I can't go home not knowing. So he goes over to the chest and he lifts the lid and inside he sees that sure enough, the phone is set inside the chest and next to the phone is sitting this old, wrinkled, disheveled, half-naked, green man. His eyes are heavy and he's trembling and he reaches out a hand towards the man that's looking in this chest and he's like horrified. He's like, what am I looking at? And, and, and the little green man looks up at him and he hears the voice and it's the exact same voice that was on the phone. And he goes, help me. And he's reaching his hand out towards the man. He doesn't know what to do. And he, the man's looking like he, he's asking for help to get out of this, this box that he's been trapped in, or I don't know. The guy doesn't know what's going on. And he makes the mistake of reaching out and their fingers touch. And the moment that their fingers touch, the world spins. The man falls down and he's feeling very sick and he's like, what is going on? And he feels all achy inside and suddenly he feels the ground. He's like, it's, it's this rough, strong smell of wood. And he looks around and he, he, he seems to be suddenly inside of, of a room with, with stark wooden walls. And he looks up and there's a giant man looking down on him. And he looks at his hands and his hands are old, sickly and green and it dawns on him. He has switched places with the little green man and he's now inside of it. And the person he switched places with slams the lid to the chest down over him. He hears it lock and footsteps walk away. And the man is now left trapped inside of this case with nothing but a phone. So what does he do? He feels sickly and weak, but he reaches out, grabs the phone handle and starts dialing numbers. And when somebody picks up, he does the same thing and says, help me, because they're the only words that he can muster. That story gave me the chills growing up be, for a number of reasons, and, and we're going to get into to some of them here in a second, but I wanted to focus on the little green man himself. For me as a kid, something about this little green man was so grotesque and revolting. I don't, I don't even know what that means. A little green man, an old man that looks green. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm picturing this like disheveled, spiritual, sort of looking weird entity that's curled up inside of this treasure box. And it was frightening and it, it made me feel sick to my stomach. And I remember going to bed at night and not wanting to picture the little green man. But, but you know that the moment you don't want to look at something, that's the moment you don't want to see something in your mind that's like on repeat in your mind automatically right? If I say, don't think of elephants, all you can think about is elephants. So if I sit down, I'm like, don't think about the green man. Don't think about the green man. That's all I can think about as a kid. And it was so horrifying because he falls in the uncanny valley, right? He's a human, but small. He's a human, but he's old. He's a human, but he's green. Now I know there's going to be a lot of listeners that are like, that doesn't creep me out that much, but remember, and you're a seven, eight year old kid, that's pretty horrifying. So let's remember, first off, ghost stories are going to deal with death, grappling with death. 
understanding the beyond. Second, you want them to fall in that uncanny valley, to, to be this thing that is almost human but not human. And the last principle of all that I think is one of the most potent things in any ghost story or any scary story is this idea of it could happen to me. Some of the best ghost stories hit us home because they are so familiar to home. And when you look at them, in the back of your mind is this question, could this happen to me? And the better that a person can answer, yes, this could happen to me, the more frightening the experience is going to be because we can't remove ourselves from it, right? Like in this moment, if a Roman legion of soldiers was charging at me with swords, yes, I would be afraid. But when I look around my room, there's no way that's going to happen, right? Why would a Roman legion of soldiers be chasing me? So when I see Gladiator or a movie that has that in it, yes, it may be tense and it may be uh, uh, frightening in the moment or create suspense in the moment. But if I can't apply it to my own life, if I can't look around and feel like this exact same thing could happen to me, that message is, is I'm going to have this shielding where I can just, I can say, oh, it's just a narrative. Because at the end of the day, they all are just narratives, right? And that's the thing we hide, hide behind is we're like, oh, it's just a story. It's not real. And so what you want to do is you want to close that gap between reality and the mysticalness of these stories. Because the closer it is to our life, the more that we carry it with us and we have this fear, oh no, that could be me. The, the Little Green Man, that story is the perfect example of this because what happens? He starts dialing random numbers. This guy ends up switching places with the Little Green Man because he his number got called and he was unfortunate enough to pick it up and, and, and listen and do something about it. And because it's just any random number in the world, the next time the phone rings in your house, you're going to think, is that the little green man? What if, and, and you're wondering, what would I do? What would I do if I picked up the phone and just heard a creepy voice? Would I go searching for the, the solution? Would I be so curious that I'd get myself mixed up in something awful? Or would I be able to shut it out and say, nope, I'm not going to dig in? Because none of us really know what we would do if we picked up the phone and we were constantly being harassed by someone who was just breathing on the other end, right? So it has bridged that gap of this could happen to me because all of us get phone calls, and all of us have had phone calls from people that we don't know who they are and we don't know their story and we don't know why they're calling us. Now, usually they don't add up into something totally horrific. But what if? What if it did? And that what if, that question of what if it happened to me is very, very powerful. Another great example of this is in the real world. You go to a hotel and you'll notice that hotels do not have a 13th floor. Because there are enough superstitious people that will refuse to sleep on the 13th floor that most hotels don't even. You look at the elevator, it goes 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Because people are so superstitious around this number 13. Because hotels are the perfect setting for a, it could happen to me, right? Because all you got to do is check in and be randomly selected to be in the wrong hotel room where something very dark and devious happened. Because hotels are home to many, many people who have passed through there. And if something dark and grisly happened inside of a hotel room and then you stay in it afterward, doesn't that mood, aren't the spirits, aren't, isn't that darkness still residing inside that room? Well, the scientists inside of us would say, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with that. It's the people that were there were creating that darkness and that evil. But what if, what if you were put in the wrong room? What if you had to stay in a hotel room that was haunted by no choice of your own. It just happened by luck. 
And thus hotels have become a perfect setting for this question. It could happen to me. Another perfect example of this is Friday the 13th. Because they happen rarely, but they happen to all of us. And the moment that we're thinking, ooh, is something curious or strange going to happen? The moment we start thinking like that, we start noticing strange and curious things. And so by having the frightening thing happen according to a date on the calendar, again, it ties us to it. It could happen to me. It's Friday the 13th. Why, why would I be spared from these atrocities when I'm just a random person just like the random people in that story? The Sixth Sense. I remember walking away from The Sixth Sense and wondering, oh my gosh, what if, what if I had a Sixth Sense? What if I suddenly started seeing dead people like that little boy? Like, how would, how would I grapple with that? How would I deal with that? And then everywhere you look when it's dark and, and you're, you're, you're looking at cupboards or doors or, you know, any of the elements of that movie, you're worried you're going to walk into your kitchen and all the cupboard doors are open and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it's happening to me just like it did to that little boy. They've bridged that gap. M. Night Shyamalan bridged that gap between the fantastical and and then making it applicable to me in, in, in a very common situation that we all partake of. One of the Coen brothers' films called A Serious Man starts out with a short story that takes place in some Eastern European country. I think it's Russia, but it could be one of the Baltics. And it's this really creepy story about this family, and it's in the 1800s sometime, and it's a cold, wintry night. Someone knocks on the door, they open the door, this man opens the door, and this, this guy smiles at them and asks if he can come in, and he gets invited in. And he's talking to this man who claims to be their new neighbor, and his wife walks in, and she's like, who's this? And he's like, I'm the neighbor. And she looks at her husband, and she whispers to him and says, that neighbor died yesterday. So either this is an imposter or it's a Dybbuk. And Dybbuk, uh, and I may be saying that wrong, um, but it's, as I understand, it's a, it's a Russian demon, a Russian uh, spirit of contempt. And she's like, this is a Dybbuk. And the, the worst thing you could do is invite a Dybbuk into your home. And the husband's like, it's not a Dybbuk. He's, he's just the gentleman down the street. There must be some confusion. Are you sure so-and-so died? And the wife is like, yes, he died. And so if you invited him to our house, you've just put a curse on our whole family. And to prove it, she grabs a knife and she walks over to this guest, this man who's sitting in their, in their living room. She grabs a knife and she plunges it into his chest. And this guy smiles, stands up, bids them good night, and shuffles out of the house. And as he leaves, the wife looks at the husband and says, See, I told you it was a Dybbuk. And the husband's like, not sure what to think. And we as the audience are left like, what the heck just happened? Like, did you just kill that guy? Did he just walk out and die in the snow? If, he, if he's a human and not a demon, did he just walk outside and die? Or is he actually a demon and, and you just got rid of him, but unfortunately you let him into your house? Because there's a superstition that if you invite a demon into your house, well, now you've just enabled all of their evilness, their cruelty, to be bound to you and your family for coming generations. And the component that I love about this idea of a Dybbuk is this idea of inviting the wrong person into your house can become this very frightening thing right? The next time a stranger knocks on your door and says, hello there, how's it going? I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm a salesman. I'm a this, I'm a that. And if you invite them into your house and you've just invited the wrong person into your house because everyone knows a demon cannot enter your house unless invited, 
A ghost cannot enter your house unless invited, right? These, these rules that we set up are built to make us think, oh no, this could happen to me. What if by mistake, I invited a Dybbuk into my house? And that creates an immense amount of dread and fear in us. The more that we can relate to what is happening in, this, in these ghost stories, the better they are going to be driven home and affect the reader or the audience. Witches and their voodoo dolls are another perfect example of this could happen to me. It's this idea that a witch just makes a doll of you and then does things to the doll, and it's going to have an impact in your actual life. And this creates fear in two ways. One, you're not going to want to be mean or cruel to a witch. I mean, a witch's wrath could, could wreck your entire life. And two, anything unexplained that happens to you, you're wondering, oh my gosh. Is there some voodoo doll out there of me, right? It breaks through any barriers that we have that we can say, oh, that couldn't happen to me. And it's like, no, like you just hurt your leg. Maybe a witch is putting a curse on you. And it's scary because there's like nothing you can do about it. Like, what are you going to do? Like go claim someone's a witch. We're not supposed to believe in the fantastical and the unreal. And so it creates this, again, this dissonance, this dread where we're like, oh, I hope it doesn't happen to me. And so often many of these terrible, gross, rotten experiences just seem to be totally random because that means that none of us are safe from the drama. None of us are safe from the danger of grappling with these dark, fantastical elements. I have to say the thing that takes the cake the most in doing this job really, really well is the movie The Ring. And they've done a couple things with that movie that are just superb in terms of closing that gap between it's so fantastical it could never happen to me to being, oh my gosh, this could be me. And the first being that this is all built around a VHS tape, right? The story of The Ring is if you watch this VHS tape that has a bunch of really creepy, gross images, which by the way, almost all fall in the Uncanny Valley. If you watch that VHS tape with gross images, you have been afflicted by The Ring. And if you don't do something about it, you will die in seven days. And the way you're knowing, the way that you know you're going to die is because the phone is going to ring and you're going to pick it up and you're going to hear nothing but breathing. <sighs> or in the American version, you hear nothing but breathing and then they say, seven days, and then hang up the phone. The reason that these things are so frightening is because the movie starts out by showing you the footage that is on the VHS tape. So you've been afflicted by it just by virtue of engaging with the story. You have crossed that line where it's suddenly like, oh my gosh, this could happen to me. Now, let me ask you something. How many times have you been at home and you were watching a show and the phone rang? Of course, this is going to happen to everybody, especially any of us who grew up in the 90s and had actual phones that sat on the wall and would ring uh, at all, all kinds of hours. It tied it so close to a reality that we're familiar with that there's, there's no escaping it. There's no avoiding it. If you watch that movie and then the phone rings in the middle of the movie, you are going to lose your crap. You're going to be like, oh my gosh. In fact, I had friends who planned this. I had friends who took girls out on a date like, we're going to go to so-and-so's house and watch a scary movie. And they go there and they watch The Ring. And about partway through the movie that they know uh, has these elements in it. And the, these girls that they're with understand what's happening. They're like, oh my gosh, we've just watched the tape too. And, and this is all happening on screen. And then if there's a phone call. And then they have a friend who knows at this exact time I'm going to dial your house phone. And so in the middle of watching the movie, the phone rings. And everybody screams. And it's the most frightening thing because you're thinking, oh my gosh, it's happening to me. So if you can bridge this gap and make it feel like it's happening to the people that are engaging with your story, you've won 
90% of the battle. Because the moment we think it's happening to us, the fear stops being fear for the character in the story and it extends and becomes fear for me as well. In closing, I'd like to share another one of the stories that was told around my neighborhood growing up that is very close to home and does a number of these super creepy things that I've been sharing. His name was Tracy. He was one of the cool kids in the neighborhood. He was a few years older than my oldest brother, and so to me, he was just like one of those hip high school teenagers that just was so cool and had everything going in his life. He loved music, and he was kind of a tough guy, kind of a had an attitude, and, you know, resembled Raphael from, from the Ninja Turtles in terms of personality, and you just look at him, and you're like, dang, he is cool. And when he was a senior, he bought a Mustang. And I remember watching him tear into our neighborhood. We lived in this, in the couple of streets on the edge of town. We were surrounded by fields, but there were about 10 houses all, all put together. And he'd come tearing down that road and us kids would watch him in this teal Mustang pull into his houses, this muscle car. And he's just blaring metal music, you know, Metallica, Megadeth, that type of thing, Primus. He's playing this music that was just raunchy and we knew that like was was far out there, heavy metal, not supposed to listen to that. But Tracy didn't care. He was just cool. And this Mustang was just the idol of the neighborhood. I remember going out one afternoon after school at the beginning of the school year and I was riding my bike down the street and I look over and I noticed that Tracy's Mustang, he's had it a few months now, and Tracy's Mustang is parked on the grass in their yard kind of facing the road and there is a for sale sign in the window. And I'm like, no way. Tracy is selling his car? I, like, why is he doing that? What's going on? And I remember riding home and asking my brother and I'm like, what's going on? Why is, did you notice that Tracy's Mustang is for sale? Something happened? Did he... He get in trouble? And Clayton's like, no, you got to hear this. The freakiest thing ever. And my heart about dropped into my stomach because like I said, I'm a wimp and I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not the best at handling these scary stories. But of course, when someone mentions it like that, your curiosity gets the best of you and, and you got to know what happened. And so I sit down, my brother launches into the story and he says, you know how Tracy listens to that metal, that heavy metal music? It's not good, man. He, uh, drive around in that Mustang and go out with friends and, you know, they're doing crazy stuff, probably smoking and probably even doing some drugs, smoking weed. Who knows what they were doing? Anyway, because of all this stuff, Tracy invited some evil things into his life. And uh, I guess the other night after hanging out and being out late with friends, Tracy was driving home. And when he looked up in his rearview mirror, he thought he saw something and his heart jumped. And he turned around and looked in the back seat of the car. There's nobody there. And he's like, what? So he drives. He keeps driving. He glances up in the mirror again. And sure enough, he sees what he swears look like eyes glinting in the back seat. And again, he jerks around and looks in the back seat. And there's nothing there. And he's like, what's going on? So he keeps driving. And at this point, he's getting really nervous. And he's pressing on the gas a lot. And he's like, I got to get home. This is like really, really weird. And he's getting kind of freaked out. And then he looks up in the mirror again, and this time he sees it. He passes a lamp post, and for just an instant, it lights up the back of the car. He can see through the rearview mirror that it lights up for just a second, and he sees him, a dark figure with a smooth face, bright eyes, black, jet black hair, slicked back. This guy was handsome, smiling, and he's just looking at Tracy in the rearview mirror. Tracy 
about loses it. He reaches up, tilts the mirror down so that he can't look back there anymore. He doesn't have the courage to look behind him. He steps on the gas and he races home just as fast as he can. He gets home, jumps out of the car, goes running into the house, bawling. His parents are like, what is going on? They go out and look in the car. There's nobody in it. But what they can't deny is that their their oldest son, Tracy, is so freaked out of his mind that he is in tears. And he just keeps saying he saw someone. Someone's in the back of the seat. The Mustang is haunted. What is going on? Like, he, he can't do it. He can't do it. And his parents try to calm him down. They say, hey, man, like, go to bed. Get rest. Like, we'll figure out this out in the morning. And they're expecting the next morning that, that Tracy will be over it and be like, ah, I don't know. I was seeing something weird. But instead, Tracy is so afraid that he's like, I've got to get rid of it. I've got to get rid of the car. And he puts it up for sale right then and there. And that's how we all knew. Tracy was a tough kid. He wasn't no wimp. If he if he had just saw something, a trick of his eyes, he wouldn't have been afraid. He must have really seen something. To be willing to give up his Mustang? Well... As the rumor mill goes and all the kids in the neighborhood are learning about this and, and some kids are talking to their parents and, and, and this is sort of the, the hot goss of the neighborhood at the time and some people started to speculate. They're like, you know, it was probably a ghost that Tracy saw, but some were like, no, it wasn't just a ghost, man. That music that, that Tracy listens to in that car. That is like heavy stuff. That is like Satan worshiper stuff. Like KISS stands for Knights in Satan's Service, doesn't it? And ACDC is Antichrist Devil Child, right? Tracy invited the occult into his car by listening to that music. And that's when somebody suggested the most horrifying thing of all. They said it wasn't a ghost in the back of Tracy's car. That was Lucifer himself. Satan was following Tracy home. So this became a big warning to all of us to be careful with the kind of music that we listen to. That really happened to me. I mean, I don't know what actually happened to Tracy in his car. I do know that the facts of the matter are that when I was a kid, there was this rumor that Tracy was followed home by a ghost in the back of his car and that shortly thereafter he sold his Mustang. Um, those are all facts. Now, what exactly Tracy saw, he's the only one that can really tell us today, but I know that that, that something weird happened in our sleepy town in Idaho, and uh, the rumors went flying. And I have to say to, that to this day, when I'm driving alone in a car at night and I'm headed home, there are times that I glance in the rearview mirror with some trepidation. There are times that I look up at that rearview mirror and I'm just like cringing and I'm like, please don't let it happen to me. And I'm a grown adult. And that's the key to these stories, because next time you're in your car, you're going to laugh this off and be like, what a silly story Carson is telling. But I'm telling you, it happened and it could happen to you. You could be driving down the road one night and you look up into that rearview mirror. And what's the worst thing that you could see while driving alone? Someone in your backseat of your car. What would you do? How quickly can you get home and get out of that car? How do you know it won't happen? to you.